This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6 a.m. on Thursday, the 19th of May. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Tan Chun Lee and Kusu Chuang. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. I'm waving my hands, you know, if anyone sees me. <laughs> Bright, happy faces on today's Friday Junior. I suppose everyone's looking forward to the weekend. Uh, not too long off now. No more long weekends. Darn. It's really? true. We have no more. Yeah, we've had two straight weekends of like ginormous like extended holidays. For the rest of the year? No, no. Oh. This Malaysia, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've got public holidays. I'm sure there's a public holiday just around the corner waiting for us. But in any case, we have a lot of conversations lined up for you this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about diplomatic uh, appointments. What signal does the appointment of Pasir Salah MP, YB Datuk Tajuddin Abdul Rahman, send about the government's priorities? We're going to discuss this with Former Ambassador Datuk Nur Farida Arifin, that's happening at 7.15. And then at 7.30, we're going to talk about Finland and Sweden that have formally submitted their applications to join NATO. We will discuss the implications with security analyst Dr. Bernard Liu of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. And then at 7.45, we have a uh, Professor Dr. Ahmad Fahan live with us because we will discuss the possibility of the reviving the high-speed rail between ourselves and the rest of Asia. That's true. Uh, we'll have, uh, that's going to be interesting, high-speed rails at both ends of our country, perhaps. That Who would knows? be quite cool. <laughs> but at what cost? <laughs> at what cost? We're going to discuss all this and more today on The Morning Run. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. The Verb with Bittersweet Symphony. You're listening to The Morning Run, 6.07am. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li. It's Thursday or Friday, Junior, as we like to call it here, the 19th of May. Now, Chuang. Everyone knows you're the watch aficionado of the morning ride. I am indeed. I know everything there is to know about watches. I believe you. You in carry Penang. a loop. <laughs> <laughs> you carry a loop in your pocket just to be on this, you know, just to be prepared. So it's no surprise that the story you've chosen to start off the morning is related to watches. That's right. Has anybody even noticed that when you look at a watch ad, um, it's always the watch hands are showing 10 past 10. And uh, if you've ever wondered why, uh, now's the time because we will reveal all um, <laughs> as to why that is the case. I did a very unscientific survey of watch advertisements. I looked up uh, Swatch, I looked up Patek Philip, I looked up Seiko. And you're right, all the advertisements I saw had the hands at 1010. 10. It's not just watches, actually, even clocks. So if you go to IKEA, if you were to buy a new clock, it's also 1010. 10. So, and I wonder why, Chuang? Well, uh, that story suggests, and they only, well, they did a huge survey of many millions of people, 48, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in yes. that case, they came to the very astute observation that uh, clockwork uh, advertisements do that because it shows a smiley face. I beg to differ. Mm-hmm. Pregnant silence. I beg to differ because I think that what happens is ten, 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 ten is 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 um it's proportionate. It's a nice number. It's it's also s- symmetrical, and I think that's why they do it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm just guessing, right? I'm also guessing that it's because you can see the logo of the, co- yes, the watch or it the doesn't, clock. Yes, it doesn't block. Uh, correct. Yes, and you can see it very um, dominantly. That is a Rolex. You know, yes. that's what you're flashing right now in, on I the screen. I am indeed. Yes. I mean, you could also see that if it was set at nine fifteen, for example, or if it was set at no nine fifteen. It blocks 820. out the it blocks out the date uh, window. If you have one on the date window at nine fifteen for I the past. I see. Yeah. So the idea is that's the it's also 
ideal location to showcase all of the watch's features in, in all, all its, its glory. glory. Yes, right. Jinx, That's right. Jinx Chuang. So henceforth, this story is interesting because it shows the power of symbolism and it shows the power of symmetry. It shows the power. It shows that. Uh, a lot of the things that you see, whether in human beings or in objects, they send very subtle but very powerful messages. And um, it happens all around us at all times of the day. I found this interesting. I mean, I am not as uh, sceptical of the smiley face theory as you are, Chuang. I feel like there is some... some uh, to me, it makes sense, I guess, because I would be influenced by smiley faces as opposed to frowny faces as well. And it got me thinking about all the different ways that retailers try to I suppose subconsciously influence consumers um, attracted to their to get them attracted to the product. That's and right. I think for me, the the first thing that came to mind was the idea that um, food brands would use colors that have been scientifically proven to get people hungry, like red mm. and yellow. And mm. then I think of McDonald's, and now I want hash browns. You know, <laughs> so I can see it's very subliminal messaging very in that much sense. So yeah, and I was actually doing a very quick research on this watch face um, thing, and apparently there's some myth around it. So there. There is this uh, atomic bomb uh, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. In all again. Uh? What's the name of the bomber that dropped the... There was three bombs. One of them was known, nameless Fat Boy. All right. Yeah. So the <laughs> just, name, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> the name aside. So it was believed that uh, the time of the bomb being dropped was 10.10. But mm. it's a myth because apparently the actual time was actually 11.02. So, well, myth busted. So it's not really true. And there's also another saying that Abraham Lincoln died at a time which shows 10.10. But the truth is, he was shot around 10.15. So, well, you know, depends on when the bullet penetrated the skull uh, and, and John Wilkes Booth also last breath. Yeah. We are learning a lot of things today. We're learning about the times <laughs> the uh, atomic bombs occurred in Japan. We're learning about the time of death of Abraham Lincoln. We're learning why watches have a ten ten in the advertisement in advertisements. Um, I want to end, I suppose, with this also unrelated point on whether you think watches are still relevant as an item in today's world. Do you think that watches still have value because once upon actually, you're not wearing a watch in this I room. I don't have a watch actually. I haven't worn a watch for many years. I think ever since I carry a f- an iPhone. I think I cannot remember how long she, that has she been. She must say like she bully iPhone. Must <laughs> <laughs> lah. Some people Android. <laughs> and Trump has a new phone. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? So, as an apparatus to tell time, no. But as an apparatus to display and convey status and power, yes. Aha, uh-huh. good, interesting point there. So, watches are increasingly becoming more of a luxury item, more of a status symbol than a utility item. Yeah, exactly. And that's why people sometimes they wear I, I want, you know, Apple watches. Mm-hmm. Not because they want to tell the time, but they want, they want to convey that they are Apple user, like, you know. I, I used to wear, uh, hello, <laughs> <laughs> I used to wear a Garmin uh, watch. You know, those and they're big... conveying that they're sporty and they're fit yes. and they're energetic. Yeah. Yes, and I actually noticed a, a client of mine last time when he was wearing another uh, Garmin watch. So I straight away associate him to be an endurance sportsman. Yeah. And I was like, do you do sports? And, and you know what? A lot of GLC CEOs, they all Almost all of them now wear um, sports watches. They don't. They don't rock those. Um, you know, expensive. Yeah, they don't anymore. Why? They, they, they want to convey that they are endurance. Um, uh, you know, athletes. Well, tell us what you think. You know, what do you think? What kind? What what 
Do you think that the kind of watch you wear conveys the person that you are? And what other subliminal messages in advertising have you noticed as a consumer? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we're going to be debating whether unlimited vacation time is as good a job perk as it sounds. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Be a rebel by new order. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.18 a.m with Shazana Chuang and Chen Li. Now, we are turning our attention to the goings-on at our favourite international investment bank, and that is, of course, Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs is giving their employees more time off. And if you're a senior banker, you actually have unlimited vacation time. So what do you think? Does this make a job with Goldman Sachs immediately more attractive? (laughs) (laughs) This is the FT's version of of clickbait stories. Because it's a complete misnomer, right? Um, Getting employed at Goldman Sachs is like being admitted to Top Gun. It's the best of the best of the best of the best. The filter is 0.1% of even eligible candidates, right? The kind of people that join Goldman Sachs are super achievers, alpha males, alpha females... Keen on conquering the world by the age of 21. They don't want to take any leave. So they don't want the <laughs> leave, don't... you're saying? Yeah, well, but of this course is, not. This is only for senior bankers, though. It's of not course. for the juniors. Although the juniors actually get two additional vacation days off. Um, but they won't. Be, you be have cha- to work your way, yeah, spend that time before you get to <laughs> enjoy that entitlement. Yeah, and by that time, maybe the entitlement is gone. Do you know, I, I, I once literally, this is a fact, right? I once met a JP Morgan country manager right, in Malaysia. This is when I first joined the, the Newswires. Way back in the early 2000s, right? And he was retiring, you know? And I asked him how old he was. He said, I'm 33. So I said, why are you retiring? You're you're quite young, right? He was losing his eyesight. Oh, dear. Losing his eyesight because too many spreadsheets, because of all the time he spent watching, you know, looking at screens, right? And he he said, the doctor told him, if you don't retire, you're going to go blind in one year. Okay, he doesn't have to retire. He can just change job. I mean, <laughs> but 33. So I said, you got the money? Said, yeah, I got enough money. You know, so yeah. that's what, you know, so they, they, you know, so people who are offered these jobs, they ain't going to take any leave. <laughs> Actually, I also wonder how, how easy it is to get approval to get, to take this time off. I mean, although it's offered to you, but your boss may not approve it, you know. So you think, I want to take a year off, for example. Who's going to do your work? And if you were to take that time off, when yeah, you come you back, do you still, and do you still have that position waiting exactly. for you? Or are you going to be placed in a different place? Yeah. Well, if you look at, I guess, I suppose, the details of what we know about this scheme, it, the people who are entitled to this unlimited vacation are like managing directors. Mm-hmm. So technically, they are the bosses of whatever area or 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 department you know in in that space so it's even so more they important get to decide i suppose whether they want to stay in the office or not and whether they trust their team um to be able to carry the work because i think that's sort of one of the key components of people being being able to take leave as well do they trust the team that they're leaving behind and so in that sense in a way you you can kind of see the boss has more incentive to make sure that he has a functioning team he or she has a functioning team um working with him um, i can see maybe some positive trickle-down effects there. Um, We should note that this scheme is coming out of a uh, movement or out of a petition that junior bankers at Goldman Sachs um, made to the higher management in the sense that they had a PowerPoint presentation. They told bosses, look, this job is unsustainable. Our hours are unsustainable. There needs to be more done um, to to make sure that we don't all suffer from burnout. So in a way, these policies are, are a result of that. 
Yeah, and you know, you get what you ask, right? You get what you apply for. And Goldman's is famous for starting salaries and sign-on bonuses. Even fresh graduates come in, and admittedly, in coming from um, Ivy League universities, their starting salaries are one hundred twenty thousand US dollars a year, and they're twenty-two years old. And this is pre-bonus, right? So you, you, you know, you, obviously, if you get hired by Goldman's, you, you, you know what you're getting into. It's, it's a hot pot. It's a cauldron of pressure. You know, you're going to be stressed out, but you know, you get paid, and. Even though Goldman Sachs, I once met this guy who was, used to work in, well, this girl who used to work at JP Morgan, quite a young girl, 25 years old. She used to have to tell bosses why she didn't come in on weekends. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah, you have to justify why you're not working weekends. And she was 25. So. Well, I, I, I actually wonder about um, the other aspect of things. Would these junior bankers actually prefer to have, say, a cap of eight hours per day kind of work rather than giving me unlimited or two additional days off? You know, so then you have more work-life balance because that's always the main um, uh, discussion among the young people especially. Because in, in working in an investment bank is very different. You have to really spend 12 hours, maybe sometimes weekends, work, public holidays. It, it's common. So... You know, so rather than having give me additional days, maybe just give me lesser working hours to throughout the week. Do you think that's realistic? Well, I think some companies try to do it, but of course it's not easy because if the client asks you for a proposal on Friday and they want it on the mm, table on Monday, mm. you just have to work the weekend. It's the chasing of the, of the deal thing, right? And if you're not fast and aggressive and on on you know, yeah. up to par, you're gonna lose the deal. Yes, that's right. And Simple also, as that. and also, the client's relationship, you know, mm-hmm. is something that is very important if you want to build uh, more business with them. But I guess there's this growing awareness that all these things can be done without causing severe harm, mental and physical, to employees, to to the workforce. So I think that's where this uh, discussion is going. Where can we find this new balance? Because yes, maybe once upon a time, people can work until they lost their eyesight or lost their hair yeah. or had to retire early. But hey, maybe we don't want to do that anymore. What's a new reality? What's a new equilibrium that we can achieve? And I guess this is all part and parcel of going to that. Uh, Whether this unlimited uh, vacation time will actually stay or whether it's just a gimmick for the short term, given the very tight uh, labor supply at the moment, um, I guess it's something to be seen. But one thing to note is that Goldman Sachs is mandating three weeks of mandatory leave for all employees by 2023. Mm. So if they get to that, if by 2023 we discuss this again and they're doing that, you know, then we're probably heading in the right direction. I love compulsory leaves, if you ask me. <laughs> exactly, right? You've got to go on holiday. No, no it's like ifs, I'm forced no to go and leave. You right? sure? I want to work. Okay, I'm going to go. Bye. <laughs> hint, hint to BFM management. Anyway, it's 6.25 in the morning. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin. And when we come back, we're going to check out the global headlines. And taking you to the news is Duran Duran with Ordinary World, BFM 89.9. Third Eye Blind with Jumper. You are listening to The Morning Run, 6.41 a.m. with Shazana Chuang and Chen Li. Can I just say, I'll confess, Jumper is one of my favorite songs. I think it's my go-to karaoke song. Really? Yes, it is. We've got to bring you to karaoke then. (laughs) It allows for a lot of screaming and yelling and just angsty wailing, which I love. So (laughs) (laughs) A lot of pent-up anger there. Nice, nice. There we go. It is the time of day where we take a look at uh, the headlines, uh, take 
taking shape around the world. Tell me what's caught your eye this morning. Yeah, continuing from our coverage from Sri Lanka yesterday. So uh, as we know, they are waiting for more gasoline for their country because they ran out of gas, right? So they have a ship that is actually waiting at the waters, but they do not have the forex still. Uh, They are hoping to release the ship today or tomorrow, but they're owing the same supplier 53 million US dollar for earlier shipment of gasoline. So they are really in a very difficult situation here with the country running out of gas and they there's no money yesterday. to pay. They defaulted yesterday. They defaulted, yeah. Yeah, so, oh, I don't know. So well, actually, tough. technically, they were already in default last week. That's what the commentator yesterday said, right? It's a very sad situation. If you want to hear more from that conversation that we had with Dr. Chulani Atanayaki from the National University of Singapore, do look up the podcast Sri Lanka in Dire State on the BFM app. It is very sad to see what's happening to Sri Lanka at the moment and we can only uh, pray that things will get better sooner rather than later. It's going to be some tough times for them moving forward. Yeah, top part of the reason why Sri Lanka defaulted is because prices are going through the roof and inflation is being felt all over the world, right? So I've got some dot plots from, from here and there. And uh, for example, um, we see that uh, beers in LaGuardia uh, Airport, right, cost now $28 per, per mug. $28. Compared to? Um, well, whatever. <laughs> no, no, come on. Th- 30 US dollars is about 140 ringgit. Right. That's a lot of money, right? That's true. And then from our um, WhatsApp uh, feed, Hafiz, right, points out that uh, a kilogram of emperor fish in Sarawak, okay, emperor is, you know, king of the fish, right? It was already expensive before. It's 1,800 ringgit per kilo now. So these, these fishes are big, right? They're about, I don't know, four or five kilos each. Just to buy one of those off the river from a fisherman is about 12,000 ringgit. I'm not sure that has... Does that have to do with global inflation per se or is it more because of the scarcity of the fish as it is? I think both because inflation is also driven by scarcity, right? But Um, if you talk about... uh, Chong, you're going to say another thing? uh, Yeah, and of course, (laughs) said Hafiz also points out that uh, Nanas from from, from Johor is also going through the roof. And I also want to talk about Roe. You know, Roe, you know, in response to a story about the watches, right? Um, Omega Swatch, pandemonium, right? Um, because when it was launched a couple of months ago, everybody hankered for it. But, I mean, one of those plastic swatches was over a thousand ringgit. It's a lot of money, right? I would argue, though, Ro, that I think the pandemonium for Omega Swatch actually uh, is to your argue, to your point, Chuang, that it's become a status symbol. It has, yeah. And everyone wa- is, that's the reason why it's going for it, rather than because of utility. Correct. But it's also inflation, because those things are plastic. That's right. And speaking of inflation, UK inflation has been reported at a 40-year high of 9%, which is a lot. And there's a lot of people are saying that is the uh, Bank of uh, England or um, um, Governor Andrew Bailey too slow to act and is failing in his job to keep inflation at 2%. So the target is 2%, but they're reporting 9%. I mean, that's higher than even with the print coming out of the US, actually, yeah, at 9%. Print, correct. And US is 83 for now, I mean, we don't know how, how far the U.S. inflation could rise either, but U.K. has hit 9%. Is it going to go up or down from here? I guess that's what everybody is going to be looking at moving forward. Still on inflation, yesterday, uh, news uh, reports from America said that every single state in America, all 50 states, petrol prices, well, they call it gas in America. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> just can't get my head around that. Well, the petrol prices in America have hit $4 a gallon for the first time in all 50 states, right? And JP Morgan have it on forecast that it's going to hit six bucks twenty cents per gallon by the end of the year. Okay, so one gallon is about three point seven liters. So that works out to be still double what uh, Malaysia pays for its petrol. And it's crazy because America is an oil producer, right? They pump 
petrol from all parts of the, you know, and, and petrol has always been very cheap in America. And later on in the show, we are going to discuss how these rising costs are affecting earnings. You are seeing a, a huge trickle-down effect across all spheres of the economy, really, um, which is why the issue of inflation and price rises is crucial to monitor and understand. Yeah, and I'm also looking at inflation numbers out of Canada, because they also report a very uh, three decades high of inflation, 6.8%, mainly contributed by housing numbers. So you can really see this inflation problem all around the world right now. All right, 6.46 in the morning. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we'll see what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was Steve Winwood with Back in the High Life uh, again. Again, yes, Back in the High Life again. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li. 6.51 a.m. on Thursday, the 19th of May. We are taking a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Chen Li, why don't we start with you? What's caught your eye this morning? Mm, I think this is uh, interesting news because yesterday during the cabinet meeting, it was um, a proof that the, uh, we don't need an AP, so-called approved permit, to import foodstuff. As what this is reported on page one, page two of the star, actually of several other newspapers as well. So if previously an AP was needed to import beef, now it is not required with immediate effect. And actually, I wonder how this. Well, of course, this is this is uh, this is done in regards to the uh, supply of food and also food inflation. So how would this translate to food prices? And how soon can we see the effect? Because technically, you don't have the middleman uh, to make profit in between. And um, hopefully, you know, within the next two, three months, we will see some effects of that or impact. Well, it depends on the supply chain, right? And how much we pay for those food items and where they come from and, and all that, you know, lovely stuff. But a lot of people don't realize that APs are not just confined to the car world. They're, conf- they're basically, they're all yeah. over the value chain in Malaysia. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. That approved permits are granted to, you know, friends of the, um, the powers that be, which is, I guess, what well, part of the reason why being in government is so profitable. So the... Uh, so. Uh, Sorry. So eliminating these APs, it's a pretty big. It's a pretty big thing. I think it's a pretty big decision. How this is going to impact um, our food security and food supplies moving forward is something to consider. I, I mean, we are a net importer of food when you think about it. We get most of our food from imports, which is which is kind of mind-boggling to think about things like chilies, things like cabbage. We don't grow those things. We have to get them abroad. Um, so we even import rice. We <laughs> even import, okay. 30, 30% of our rice is imported. So the fact is um, these things really need to change. I feel like just because we allow more imports, that doesn't mean we're going to get the supply. So maybe we should be looking at moving to a more um, to focusing on food crops as opposed to industrial crops moving forward. I think there's a lot to discuss when it comes to agricultural policy and how this contributes to food security and safety. Yes, and I hope that the importers will really pass down the uh, the margins or to the consumer I mean to consumers and not keep it for themselves because that's the, the gist of why we're doing this right the response is to rising food inflation um, wh- whether we're going to see immediate results is really another matter that's we don't right. know when we're going to see uh, the repercussions of this but something we'll be keeping an eye on and Chuang what's in on your uh, crosshairs did you guys see that item that came out yesterday on whatsapp that um, apparently 22 and a half million uh, Malaysians with data data of 22 and a half Malaysian Malaysians uh, born between 1940 and 2004, was apparently stolen from the uh, from the IC department and uh, sold uh, for guess, get this right 
10,000 US dollars on the dark web, right? Yes. So 22 and a half million um, identities uh-huh. sold for 10 million US dollars. 10,000 US dollars. 10,000 US dollars, right? So I don't know which is worse. The fact that so many <laughs> um, identities were, were, were basically stolen and sold or the fact that this data only went for ten thousand US dollars. I mean, how many cents is that per, per person? <laughs> actually, that's exactly. how much we're worth. Uh, is that all we're worth? <laughs> yeah. So it, many issues, right? Yeah. First of all, can well, obviously not because governments can't be trusted. IC department, uh, leaky security, uh, paywalls, um, and of course, can, who, who do you take action against? Can governments being taken? You can't, right? Because they're above the law, right? So the, a lot of issues to untangle there. IC department being <laughs> right. the National Registration Department, the NRD, or the JPN by its Malay acronym. Uh, Just to note that the Ministry of Home Affairs has come out to say that this alleged leak does not come from the NRD. Uh, That is their statement. That's their latest statement uh, to date. We are going to be discussing this issue further with Alexander Wong, the managing editor of Soya Chinchow, later on in the morning at 8.30am. We'll get him to just to help us understand better the magnitude of the leak and the kind of ramifications that he sees coming out of this. But again, this is a very concerning story in the sense that it does bring to question uh, the strength of cyber security infrastructures, especially for governments. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, investigations are done on this soon and quickly and swiftly. Um, but yes, we have one more minute, maybe a quick headline from you, Chuang. What else do you see that's caught your eye? Well, you know how is this is another item we're going to talk about in a few minutes, right? But the appointment of um, Salah South MP, um, YB uh, Tajudin, who has been... Pasir Salah. Pasir, Pasir. <laughs> that's how much I know about politics, right? <laughs> but this guy, former chairman of Prasarana, you know, elected as Indonesian uh, ambassador to Indonesia by Malaysia. Government. Well, Nazri Aziz, Datusri Nazri Aziz, has defended the appointment, saying that he's a person who's been elected many times and that people are comfortable with him. So, Okay, we will be discussing that further very shortly with former diplomat Datuk Nur Farida Arifain. Stay tuned for that conversation. 6.55 in the morning, we're heading into the 7 a.m. News Bulletin. We'll come back after that with a look at how global markets closed overnight. Uh, teaser, it's in the red. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.